Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. The majority of sites don't hit recruitment targets for clinical trials, resulting in costly delays and burnout from sites and patients. Some of those delays are because those sites are not equipped for the trial, or the trials are not the right fit for that site. Today, Tegan Mead, Executive Director of Operational Excellence, and Julie Manson, Associate Director of Project Strategy at Javara, describe how they are applying data and technology to identify the right fit and make sure that sites are set up for success, advising sponsors on how to make trials less burdensome for patients, and keeping physicians in the loop on trials for their patients, all to make clinical trials more successful in more places for the benefit of patients. To start, can you walk us through what the impact is on trials overall when sites don't meet their recruitment targets? Tegan, can you go first? So I think most importantly, it's the experience that we see as a reflection. We're talking the patient's experience. So they perhaps don't want to participate again, or they are left with a negative feeling. You know, I signed up for this study. I went through all these tests and now the site is closing unexpectedly. And now I feel like I didn't finish the full circle, right? I, I, I've lost kind of some of my faith in that process. Then you also have the physician and investigator experience, which is I've spent a lot of time, resources, energy, in many cases, especially if these physicians are doing this independently, maybe they didn't have the resources to do full exploration like they needed to. But even at the end of the day, now maybe they don't want to engage in clinical research. We know that there's a lot of one and done investigators because of the experience that they had. We just circle right back. Now we're causing more delays because now we don't have enough investigators to participate in clinical research. We're causing more delays and it's more expensive because now the patients who had the bad experience don't want to participate. And we see a lot of patients who said, oh, I've done research before. I don't want to do that. And we have to kind of rewalk them through an experience and, and provide something completely different than what they may have seen in the past. So at the end of it, we're really talking, you know, people's experience is going to influence their next action, whether that's physicians or patients, as well as just the waste of, of time and resources. And that's sponsor dollars, that's physician dollars, it's, it's you know, groups like ours dollars that it could be wasted in the event that those sites that we get up and running aren't able to succeed for one reason or another. And ultimately, it just leads to a delay in novel treatments and makes it very expensive by the time it's even available to patients. And at the end of the day, it's the patient that needs that treatment that's going to suffer, whether it's delayed or cost or you name it. And what would you describe as the main reasons for not hitting those targets? One of the biggest challenges that we're seeing is trying to guess or fill out how many of our potential patients that we know look like they might match to a study based on their diagnosis and their location are actually willing and able to participate in a trial. This became a bigger issue during COVID, but it's lingered years later after the initial onset of the pandemic that we've had to come take a step back and approach things a little differently when we are giving enrollment projections or we're looking where there's the best site to fit the right trial. The criteria in protocols these days is very restrictive and there is an excess number of inclusion exclusion. In some cases with some of the more complex trials, we've seen up to 60 plus inclusion exclusion. I mean, talk about a needle in a haystack. That is incredible to find that type of patient. Secondarily, I don't think pharma has caught up to the real world when it comes to the feasibility process. We are still in a situation where 
sites are forced to fill out feasibility questionnaires, or we have sites that are bolstering numbers or fluffing up numbers to win the work, but it's really setting them up for failure when they can't actually come through with those patients that they submitted for due to some of the other reasons that we just mentioned with patients, you know, being more picky about what it is that they want to participate in. Recruitment, right? There are insufficient funds being supplied from pharma or from sponsors to help really get into the nitty gritty recruitment that we need, which is really boots on the ground community engagement. We used to live in a world where you could post an ad in the newspaper and that was great. And you could, you know, get all of the folks you needed kind of situation. Um, but now with, you know, social media and everything else, people are very segmented in the way they're receiving their media. I don't even follow the same media that my husband does. And a lot of times we have differing information on stories that we're getting. So imagine for patients, what that must be like, um, you know, if they're only going to certain media sources, how do you cover all of those to let people know that you even have clinical trials available? Can you tell our audience a little bit about how Javara is through technology or through data, helping to solve this problem of finding the right sites to enroll patients and meet recruitment targets? Absolutely. Speaking about data, there's several approaches that we take at Javar. Of course, smart strategy. We want to put the right studies at the right sites. And to do that, we use protocol patient matching tools. And we also work a lot with recruitment funnels. We're able to give a lot of valuable feedback at feasibility to the sponsors and the CROs as they are determining the patient population and, and where they need to, to focus their efforts. We also do develop very detailed recruitment plans and budgets. They're customized to our locations and, of course, the protocols. Um, and we are working to track this over time because we want to build metrics to make even better decisions in the future on how to spend the recruitment dollars, however few they are that we get. But in addition to the data-driven efforts that we have in place, we are also focusing on sponsor support. Like we want to really conduct a very thorough review of the protocol. And when it comes across to Javara, we want to be able to give our feedback early on so that we can help highlight anything that might be challenging for clinical implementation and possible solutions ahead of time just to support the sponsor in that way. And then on the flip side, with our site support, investigator awareness is key. So we want to make sure our PIs and their sub-eyes are tapped in to the full menu of trial opportunities they have access to to supplement their current treatment options that they are presenting to the patient in front of them. 72% of Americans say it's likely they will participate in a clinical trial if it was recommended by their doctor. But only 22% say that their doctor or other healthcare professionals have ever even talked to them about clinical research. In addition to that, we at Javara make it a pleasurable experience for the patients from beginning to end. By embedding our trained staff in the clinic, we become a part of that culture, build relationships with the staff and the patients, and the bottom line is a patient that is well cared for is going to be far more likely to be a retained subject. Can you give me an example of something that a sponsor did that you flagged in a protocol review? Early on, a lot of times we'll review a high level synopsis and think about how this could be fit into CRACO in our community outreach. Sometimes trials are written very complex ways. And these patients are getting missed in the local community because the trial is written in a way that it's really catered towards a very highly specialized hospital center where patients are referred to. 
But in rural America, a lot of times the family medicine or the internal medicine doctor that they're seeing for all of their needs does manage a lot more complex indications and follow-up. And so sometimes we talk to the sponsor about, hey, if you can make this a little broader, then you're going to catch more patients and you're going to reach these patients that otherwise wouldn't have an opportunity to participate in a trial. There's been a few times where we've had sponsors request feedback on protocols and you know, we're able to provide with our network of providers some critical feedback that really, um, much like Julie had mentioned, you know, sometimes as it's designed for a hospital, it's not realistic in, in, a, in a real world setting. For example, requesting a patient to have multiple biopsies or multiple repeated procedures within a very short time frame, which in an academic setting may be more acceptable the common man or woman who may be working a regular job doesn't have time to do these procedures in a repetitive fashion. So providing insight that's coming from the providers themselves who would be executing this project to say, you know, based on the endpoints, if you perform this procedure on this time period and this time period, you would still get the data potentially you're looking for without overburdening that patient with excessive procedures. And we've had sponsors who have taken some advice and made adjustments to those protocols. Not everybody does, but I think the feedback is what's valuable to understand that if you want to get more patients in the community-based setting involved, we also have to write it for those people to make it feasible. These are working Americans, you know, these are working folks and we want them to participate, but we have to write the protocols in such a way that allow for that. They, they can't be at the clinic all day, every day, uh, you know, for, for 15 and 20 hours to run procedures that may not really be providing all the data that we need if, if we could, you know, set it in a little bit better format. Tegan, you obviously work in clinical operations. What do you think needs to change that would be possible for sponsors to do and also really make a big difference for sites and for patients? I think if we could find a way to bring physician groups together, physician investigators uh, with sponsors and pharma to really understand what takes place at a clinic. What I find happens most, and I'm going to be honest, even in the site world, especially if you have a decentralized team, the minute you bring somebody from a decentralized team or a sponsor who's not actually been to a site and observe what actually has to take place in a site setting to get a patient enrolled. There's so much that can be garnered from that observation um, that would impact the way that those protocols are written. And so if there's a way that we could kind of bring those groups together um, for sponsors and pharma to really see what it, what, what it takes on a site level, I think that they would really take away some information um, that would be valuable to them in the way that they execute those protocols in the future. I completely agree with that. And I think that that is a key reason um, that Devora, the project strategy team that works on bridging opportunity to come to our uh, business development team and then goes to the clinical operations side to see if it's something that would be a fit. Everybody on that team has a strong clinical operations site background because that's what it comes down to. Is this really something that can and should be placed at these clinics? Because you know, these are real people, real patients, real doctors that day to day are managing a lot of different things. And we want to integrate into what they have going on, not the other way around where academic settings can do that. 
Can you speak to what Javara sites do to be optimized and ready for clinical research? So uh, in order to, to be a Javara site, we actually go through many, many steps before we even get there, uh, especially with a new healthcare partner. So something that I think is really critical that Javara does is we observe. So we take time, sometimes it's myself even, who goes to a new healthcare partner site location, really to observe and understand their current functioning workflow. Because it is critical that we understand how it is that they are already functioning in order for us to properly integrate into their site. So we don't come in with a, what I'm gonna call a bulldozer approach, which is this is how we do research and this is the way you're going to do it, uh, you know, X, Y, Z. We really try to take the time to understand how they are functioning. And then we align our processes and procedures to fit seamlessly with the way that they are already functioning. So it becomes much more easy for healthcare providers or healthcare partnerships to bring clinical research in when we are trying to curve the river with them, if you will, instead of asking them to change their ways. That makes clinical research much more pleasurable for the investigator and the healthcare partner as well. And they're much more welcoming to the idea of changing a few things to help accommodate, but we really want to work together in a collaborative relationship uh, more than trying to force the round peg into the square hole situation. Can you expand on what you mean by moving with the momentum that a site already has? What do you look for where you think we can adapt to this versus coming in and replacing something? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, understanding the front end workflow, how does the patient check in? How do they normally advise their back office team that a patient has arrived? Is that through a computer system that they're using? Is that something that we can sink into as part of that normal flow. Where something that we might need to make an adjustment, um, you know, many physicians like to, you know, go do their visits and maybe they chart at the end of the day. Well, as we know in clinical research, that doesn't really jive. We really need that Alcoa Plus in the moment. And so that's really about educating the physician on the differences between clinical work and clinical research and where we actually need an adjustment to be made and why we need that adjustment. And so that's something that we would kind of, you know, align to. Uh, it's similar like their EMR, right? It's, you know, on a computer where we do our documentation, but the criticality behind really needing them to execute on that chart note or, or documenting what they did right then would be an area where we would really have to, um, I guess you could say, not go with the river on that. They really have to kind of conform to that one. Thank you so much for that example. Can you tell me a little bit about how you identify what sites really have the capacity, have the patient population to be a good fit for a trial? We categorize it as three buckets. When we're looking at opportunities to find the right site, the right trial to be a fit, we consider our PI interest, uh, of course, patient access, but opportunity for growth at the site. So are they capable? Do they have the capacity to operationally implement the study? We do use a lot of technology. We actually have um, AI tool that can set on top of EMRs and it's able to pull both structured and unstructured chart documentation and convert it into what I call research ready data um, that we could use for everything from FQs to funnels. We also use patient funnels and data that we pull from the EMR, such as lab results, diagnosis codes, procedure codes, and we're able to use those to build the funnels to narrow down our patient population. And at that point, 
We have um, awesome feasibility tool that can generate pre-screening lists, call lists, and mailing lists, depending on how we customize our recruitment plan for that particular protocol at that particular location. What would you say is the outcome of that? Do you see a reduction in missed targets? Do you see more patients staying in the trial or, or being included in that funnel versus left out or dropping out? Absolutely. This allows us to get more granular to where we can um, kind of start to make educated guesses, if you will. You know, which of these patients potentially qualify and what percentage of them do we think actually might be able to participate, you know, based around their childcare schedule or based around how many visits are required? You know, all of these different layers that start getting piled on. If we can get real granular with the data pool using this technology, then that allows us room to get more creative with our educated guesses on the rest that we need to consider on whether a patient will actually really participate. I would say as well, just the level of technology that we put forth into this process of recruitment just helps increase that overall proficiency. And then with the utilization of those tools, because those patients are already identified while they are blinded, once we are ready to recruit, it's just really a matter of flipping the switch for lack of a better word, which then identifies those patients immediately so that we can start the process with those outbound communications. And we already know who exactly it is that we are wanting to reach out to and engage. And we can start that process much, much more quickly. Can you speak to the importance of and the impact of presenting clinical research, clinical trials as a care option for patients to make sure that it's reasonable for them, that it's realistic for them, and really providing that access? What does that do for patients? I know a lot of patients can at times feel like a, a screen fail is a personal failure, but really the data that they've even provided within the screen failure is critical. Uh, those are, are patients that we still need to screen and identify to ensure that, first of all, we're en enrolling the right people. But second of all, we like to have a conversation with patients, you know, just because this particular trial didn't work, um, that's okay. We may have found something else, right? What if this person wasn't aware that they had high cholesterol, which is maybe an exclusion on this particular trial, but it's something that they can take with them to their physician to say, hey, I was in a clinical trial and they gave me these lab results and said, I need to talk, talk to you as my physician about these results. So even, even though they didn't get to participate in the full trial, a lot of times we're finding other things that are still of value to the patient. Maybe this trial wasn't the right one, but if that patient is interested in remaining in our database and, and being contacted about future opportunities, then we will continue to engage them as appropriate as those opportunities become available so that they are always, as a part of our patient community, informed and engaged on what trials are available to them in their local area so that they always have an opportunity to participate in things that feel valuable to them. And I'll add to that as well. Um, had a real life example uh, a few weeks ago with a strategic partnership where we had done a phase two study. They're planning their phase three and they came back to Javara and really wanted to drill down. We were able to just run the reports and pull the data of specific reasons why patients screen failed. And they're using that to tweak their phase three protocol with our input. And that is exciting because a lot of the reasons had to do with some of the exclusionary medications and that there is a really good, you know, standard of care. And if you're going to put placebo in, then you got to consider that. I just found it very beneficial that we had that information from those patients that had 
taken the time to try to qualify for the study, even if it didn't work out and they screen failed. Um, and the flip side is we are holding hands with their local provider. So there's a handoff of, hey, thank you for trusting us. We're going to screen them for the study. And if they qualify, their provider continues to be involved. If they don't qualify, of course, their provider continues to be involved because they go back to the standard of care options or another trial option that we might have. Can you expand on the ways that you're looping in the physician or connecting clinical research back into the care systems that patients are coming from and interacting with most often? We are able to reach five plus million patients because we have access to their EMRs and their local physician care team, if you will. But we try to take the burden out of participating and offering local, easy to reach locations, extended hours supported by their personal physicians to break down those barriers of patient participation. And ultimately when engaging a whole healthcare system and not just an individual site, we're leveraging the existing relationships that are already there. And we're there to complement their current excellent level of care they're getting from their local physician. Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it better, Julie. If we are the best complement. And really that is how uh, we are really sharing that information and ensuring that those physicians are engaged. We have our site managers on site. They're having regular interactions with those healthcare providers, but they are also doing other things with the healthcare system. They're attending larger size meetings. They're engaging with the entire staff. So it's not so singular in nature where it's just the PI. It is really about the engagement of the healthcare system. So that even if their physician is a, what I'm going to call a non-participating physician, maybe they're not a sub-I, they're not the principal investigator, they still know who that principal investigator is through those communications and have access to that information, whether it's a one-on-one -on -one consultation or just wanting to check in and make sure that their patient is okay. They know exactly who's treating that patient. And we make it very well known within those healthcare partnerships for them to quickly and easily be able to find that out. We do share documentation with the PI, even if they are the primary care provider that just says, hey, your patient's been enrolled in a trial. We still do all those same communications so that that information is documented within their EMR. And any physician within that healthcare system is able to see who that patient is and, and that they're enrolled in a trial at any time. So keeping everybody involved in that healthcare team so that they're all aware, so that we can help keep that patient safe, but also keep everybody informed. So working with sites, complementing sites, making sure that they're the right sites, what does that do for diversity amongst uh, clinical trial participants in the mission of clinical research as a care option? Can either of you shed a little bit of light on that subject? Sure. So we do actually have a, a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Her name is Ashley Moultrie. She is fully dedicated 100% of the time to this purpose. And so really what we have is Ashley's focus, helping to ensure that our site locations are really purposefully being engaged with community engagement, not community outreach. And I think it's really important that we segment what that means. Community outreach tends to be very transactional temporary. It feels like you're kind of coming in with an ask a lot of times, whereas community engagement is really about the site teams and the local areas that they live and work going out into the community and really being motivated by service, right? They're going to the food banks. They are participating in the backpack events at their local fire department. They are building 
a face of Javara within the community. And really what that does is help provide educational opportunities. It creates an opportunity to talk about clinical research. Like, hey, I, your shirt says Javara, what's that? Tell me a little bit about that. They begin to see us as a part of the living community, not coming in for an ask and then kind of vanishing and, and feeling very transactional and very absentee. Ashley really, really focuses on helping the teams identify those opportunities and then help them get out there to be active parts of their community. I think what's really cool about our group in Javar is our teams are very passionate about community engagement. A lot of times they're bringing ideas to Ashley or they're raising their hand and saying, hey, like, what if we did this? Or I had somebody say, hey, I coach a soccer team. I would love if Javar could come out and hand out waters to the team and wear your gear. Having that direct community engagement is really, really critical. Also, we have our own internal metrics. While sponsors have numbers that they are interested in having us meet at certain time points, we are constantly measuring ourselves against that and really making sure that we are putting clinical trials where the patients that meet the right inclusion and exclusion are, but at the same time, ensuring that we're engaging those diverse communities and diverse groups that need to be included in clinical research as well. With the technology that we have and the access to the large volume of EMRs, we're obviously able to drill down our patient access and get real granular and understand the demographics of the potential patient beyond their diagnostic code, such as age, gender, race, ethnicity. That's how we select the right site for the right trial. As we're wrapping up this conversation, maybe you can share a little bit about the mission of Craco, what Javara does in the pursuit of really making Craco a reality of, of making clinical research a care option for people in a way that's accessible and has impact. I think one thing we could say about Craco that's really important, and it's probably overarching. I think at the end of the day, how do we bring clinical research to meet people where they are, right? Really putting systems in place that allows patients in the community to engage with their trusted physician and still have the opportunity to be presented with cutting edge science and opportunities without necessarily having to travel excessive distances, meet with physicians or care teams that they're unfamiliar with. I think that is really at the heart of Craco is bringing clinical research to where people are and to the physicians that they already trust. Thank you so much, Tegan and Julie, for taking the time to share with us more about what Javara is doing to really optimize clinical research, to bring it into the care setting, and to make sure that patients have access to clinical trials. Tegan Mead is the Executive Director of Operational Excellence at Javara, and Julie Manson is the Associate Director of Project Strategy at Javara, describing how they are applying data and technology to identify the right fit of a clinical trial for a site making sure that sites are set up for success and advising sponsors on how to make trials less burdensome. For more information on PharmaTalk Radio, you can visit theconferenceforum.org. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.